recommend this book enough, although I have to tell you, despite being small and very, like, welcoming, I read it very slowly over a very, very long time and, like, worked at it. It was not, not because it's difficult, but, like, conceptually, really, Chuva takes a certain amount of thought. Okay. Which is a little bit of our topic today. I read Garden of Amuna. Right, because you like you do like a paragraph, you think about it. Okay. So today's topic. Last week, we talked about Halaluka. Right, we're sort of closing in this um, introduction to Baruch Shamar. And um, hopefully next week we'll start actually like with Baruch Shamar inside. But this is, I think, our last class on sort of the concepts of Pesuket Dezimra as a whole. So we talked about this idea of the neshama within being best able to recognize Hashem in the world. Right, and we've talked in the past about Psuki de Zimra as a process of looking at the course of events, history, <coughs> forces of nature, and seeing in that Hashem's control and that it is all part of his plan. And from that coming to a place of singing his praise. And at the end of last school year we talked about that in terms of Yira, that the level of Psuki de Zimra is associated with the level of Yira. So, if now, see, I work here, so <laughs> I just have to check in. Okay. Um, if we look at the structure of Pesuket Zimra, it looks like this. It is a mitzvah, <coughs> and it begins with a bracha and ends with a bracha. Okay. So, we have talked in the past... Um, with brachos about the idea of every bracha, there are short brachas and there are long brachos, remember? And long brachos open with a bracha and then close with a bracha. So benching. Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam Hazan And there's a long paragraph in detail. And then it ends with Baruch Hashem Hazan Esako, which is in brief, right? And that closes it. When you start no delacha, that's the beginning of another benching, of another bracha, sorry. It, it'll, eventually it'll all kick in. Okay, that's the beginning of the next bracha, but it doesn't open with Baruch Hashem because it piggybacks onto the bracha before it. When you have two brachas in a row, it's a bracha smucha lechevrata, a bracha that is attached to its friend. So then it takes the opening. So we have the same thing over here. The opening bracha is Baruch Shomar v'hayah haolam Baruch Hu, continuing with Baruch Hashem melech mehulal batishvachos, and it ends with Yishtabach. Yishtabach Shemcha Lo'ad Malkeinu, ending with Baruch Ato Hashem, Kel Melech Gadol Batish Bachos, Kel HaHodos. Okay, so that's, step one is to recognize that's the structure of Pesuket Zimra. It's a bracha at the beginning and a bracha at the end. So then you have to ask the question, so how, how do you have all the stuff in the middle? And especially Pesuket Zimra, right? It's like stuff in the middle. What's that all doing there? The answer is, it's not an interruption because it's adding to the process of what you're doing in the bracha. So in the opening bracha and in the closing bracha, we're praising Hashem for the fact that He is the one who created the world and He controls the world and He gives reward and punishment and saves everyone, right? And at the end, we also praise Him like that so that means everything in the middle is not an interruption precisely because it builds those themes out in our mind. 
Because it's building that out, that's why it's not an interruption. All right, so what's the climax then? Meaning if I'm going to go through these, you know, I have Hodu. I started saying Hodu in seventh grade because I went to Beis Yaakov and they said Hodu. Uh, they said it before Bak Sharma because they thought in the Sukhsvard, but okay, I don't, you know, what can you do? But it, it was very long. It, it just seemed very, very long, especially because it wasn't broken into pieces. Okay. And then there's Mizmor Lesoda. And then there's Yehi Chavod. And then there's Ashrei. And then there's Halalukas, five of them. And then there's a description of David Amelech speaking before the Bnei Israel when they had gathered together, when he had pulled together all this money to be able to be prepared to build the base Hamikdash, which he wasn't allowed to build, and then Az Yashir, and then Yishtabach, which means that the climax of this process is Az Yashir. So today, what I want to do is I want to look at not Az Yashir itself in detail, but what that process is and how it relates to the process of Elul, since we're being thematic this year. Okay, so I made, I started doing a handout. In the end, I didn't make copies of it because it was super, super, super wordy. So if you want it, just ask me and I'll email it to you. But it, it was so long and wordy that it didn't seem worthwhile as a handout really anymore. Okay, so in, oh, I left my function there. Okay, never mind. At the in Shmos, Parshas Bishalach, we're coming to the Red Sea. And Moshe held out his, his hand over the sea and it started to turn back, and the Mitzrayim were chasing behind them, and Hashem shook the Mitzrayim in the sea. And the water came back, and it covered up all of the chariots and the horses and all the soldiers of Paro that were chasing behind them, and none were left, and the Jewish people walked through on dry land in the midst of the sea. The water was like a wall on the right and the left, and Hashem saved the Jewish people from the hands of the Egyptians, and the Jewish people saw that Egypt was dead on the banks of the sea. We say this in our davening in the morning. The Jewish people saw the mighty hand with which God had worked in Egypt. Hi, good morning. And we've mentioned in the past, right? Rav Schwab explains they they saw what God had done for them in Egypt, right? Not just taking us out of Egypt, but what had happened to us in Egypt. Everything, all the slavery, all the hard times, all the children thrown into the river, in addition to being taken out of Mitzrayim, they saw all of that mighty hand, Vayiru Ha'am Es Hashem, and the nation had awe of God, Vayaminu Ba'ashem, and they trusted in Hashem, Uve Moshe Avdo, and his servant Moshe, then Moshe and the Jewish people sang this song to Hashem. So there's actually a process. This is a description, but it's a description of a very specific process. There's something that happened here. Because remember, we've talked about Sukkot Zimra, and we've been talking about Yira. And we talked about the connection between Yira like seeing and Yira like having a sense of awe, right? Because it's awareness. When you become aware, as Rav Hirsch calls it, Yerushalayim is seeing your own smallness in Hashem's bigness and greatness, right? That seeing, so this, the fact that the seeing leads to awe, vayar Yisrael, vayir u ha'am, that's not surprising. 
It's not surprising linguistically anymore. It's not surprising even conceptually, because we've walked our minds through it, whether we felt it or not, I don't know. I had such an interesting experience. I subbed a class, an eighth grade class, here at the school. And the girls, they were like leaping out of their seats. It was, you know, I don't know where, where we'll top that topic. I asked my daughter, I said, what should I tell them? So she advised me. She told me what topic to tell them, right? So you remember we did about um, B'nai Ephraim? Oh, she told you about it, right? They were very excited. Right. Okay, so I mean, how could you not be, right? This was the B'nai Ephraim. Remember, I we learned about the B'nai Ephraim? You remembered the class, <laughs> right? So you looked like good. <laughs> so you looked good, right? <laughs> about the B'nai Ephraim and the Yechezkel revived them, right? So the girls are sitting there when they were sitting. First they sat, they would sit real quiet and then they would like leap out of their seats and all start screaming at once. You forget what it's like to be in eighth grade? Like they would all get up and start shouting at once and then we'd all sit down again and like sit. And then they'd all get up and start shouting at once. It was really, really cute. So, but then they were like, but that's so scary and I have goosebumps, but that's so amazing. And I was like, right, that's Yira. Because Yira is when you realize how small you are. I mean, how much Yira could you taste in eighth grade? Right? But it's, when you realize how, how huge some of this is, some of the things that go on in the world, there's so much that's huge, and it doesn't really take revival of the dead to see it. It's just that's so outside of our normal experience that it's rather surprising, and it gets our attention, and we see it, right? But that, that tension of, okay, but where does that go? That explains leading to But where does it go from there? Vayaminu ba'ashem uvu Moshe Avdo. They trusted in Hashem and in Moshe, his servant. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I think we've done classes on Emuna, and if we haven't, we will when we get to Shema, because of Kel Melech Neeman, right? That spells out Amen. So we'll talk about Emuna. But the small definition of Emuna is allowing your feelings and your actions to be guided by what you already know from experience to be true, even though you cannot see it right now. Okay? And that's, that's, that is really very much what we call trust. Right? Trust, not, and I'm not using the word faith, because faith in English is something blind. It's like the, the less basis you have for faith, the better it is, in, at least in Christianity, right? So trust, though, trust is something that builds up over time. You say, you know, this person has always been warm and welcoming to me before. So the fact that when I walked up to their door, they slammed it shut, I could be offended. But I could also say, you know, since they have always in the past been warm and welcoming, probably they don't hate me suddenly. Probably there's just something else going on. That changes how you feel, changes how you act. And then you'll find out, like, next time you see them, maybe they'll be warm and welcoming again. You'll say, you know, it's really funny. I once came to visit you, and you slammed the door. Like, what was that about? And they might be, like, all embarrassed. Oh, I was, like, throwing up. <laughs> and I saw somebody coming down the street. I didn't even know who it was. And I just didn't, you know, I had to get inside. I wasn't even paying attention. Or I didn't even see someone coming. Or, right? Now, that's, we really owe it to people. We owe it to people to remember that they have treated us well, and then... Keep that in mind. But it's not so easy to do in the heat of a moment. And that's where Muna comes in with Hashem. It's not blind. It's based on the fact that we can see all these things he does for us. 
in our own lives and in the lives of our parents and our grandparents and our ancestors, and we look at everything that's happened, and we can say, you know what, up until now it's always been with a plan. It's always been for the better good of us. There have been very, very hard times. And yet somehow Hashem has always taken us through it and brought us to somewhere purposeful. So therefore, I can trust him. That's, I don't know where you're taking me, God. I know it's somewhere good, right? So that's, they saw, they had awe, they trusted. And then they sang Shira. Okay. So Rashi says, why does it say Az Yashir Moshe? We have a couple issues with this, not going to go into all the questions. Az means then. Means other things too. We've mentioned that, right? Az is one and seven. So it's the the supernatural controlling the natural. Right? That's Hashem controlling the natural. That's part of what they were seeing over there was there's these natural cycles, the natural forces in the world but Hashem is controlling them and moving them. Nothing has any power other than Hashem, right? So that's Uz. Uh, that's Kleyakar says that. Uz, and then Yashir means he will sing. So it's a little tricky with this phrase, Uz Yashir, then he will sing, because then sort of sounds past tense-ish, or at the very best, present tense, meaning following upon what happened in the past, here I am now. And Yashir is off into the future. So the Mepharshim deal with this quite a lot. There's a lot of hints in here. But I'm going to take the first explanation of Rashi. Az hanes, az, then, meaning following upon what has just happened. It's an actual series. It's a process. What just happened, that they saw the Yad Hagdol in Mitzrayim, they had awe, and they trusted. Az hanes, when they saw this great miracle, Allah Bilibo Sheyashir Shira. There was, it came up in his heart to sing this song, a song of praise. It came up in whose heart? In his heart. In this case, it means Moshe's because it's Az Yashir Moshe, okay. but it's also the Jewish people equally, Uvne Yisrael. It wasn't Moshe okay. more than the Jewish people over here. Everyone had this Nivua together. Okay. And then he gives some other examples Az Yadaber Yoshua. Bayis Osalavas Paro, that Shlomo, Shlomo is going to build a home, uh, like a castle for the daughter of Paro. Choshav Belibo Sheyasila. What does it mean, Oz? Oz means, Oz describes a gap in time. Then, first, uh, in computer programming, that would be if, then, right? If this situation, then something else. Which means, then, what it tells you is, Something happened first, and something followed because of the first. Right? That's a gap that Rabbi Goldberg talks about sometimes. Um, what is that? The space between react, um, action and reaction? What does he call it? I forget now. It's like a seven habits phrase. I can't remember what it is. Right? There's like a gap between when we feel something and then we respond to it. So if you can increase the space, right, then you can make better decisions in that space. Oz is describing that there's a space there. First we think of things, then we act. Now the thing is we're so accustomed to acting quickly that sometimes we act and we can't even remember we thought about it first. <laughs> but the truth is, every action is the conclusion of a thought that was initially. Always. There's always some thought that has to happen first, right? Neurologically, like, there has to be a message from your brain to send it down. 
okay, if it's not like one of those reflex things with the hammer, because then actually the impetus starts down there, okay? But essentially speaking, if there's going to be some sort of action or reaction, then there was first a thought. Afkan, yoshir. So that's why the word yoshir, this is the first explanation of Rashi, is in the future. <coughs> Meaning it's the future from the thought that was first. So first there was a thought, us, yashir. And then there's a reaction that follows in the future time from the thought. That could be a quarter of a second, or much less, or it could be longer than that. So Khan, yashir, amar lo libo she yashir. His heart said that he should sing this song. And then they said, I will sing to Hashem. He is very high and mighty. And that letter Yud, here he only says it in a hint. The letter Yud, Chazal teach us, refers to machshava, to thought. Okay? So that's really like a hint because Rashi says elsewhere in Bereshis about the, like the first... The spiritual worlds were built with a yud, right? And the physical world was built with a hay, right? So there's, there's more here than just it's in the future, therefore it told you there was a thought first. <clears throat> okay, the letter yud is referring to the thought that leads to an action. So if we think about letters as being the translation of thoughts into words, Right? Words as an expression of something that starts in the mind and comes out into physical. We've talked in the past about speech as the sort of tiniest form of action. So what's the tiniest form of speech is the letter Yud. It's the smallest letter of all. <coughs> okay, so Yud. <coughs> Sorry. Yud. <coughs> I, I think I'm okay. Thank you. I just drank. Thank you. <coughs> Hello. <laughs> Testing. It's like, <laughs> okay. So Yud then refers us to the thought. It's as close to the thought as you can get while still being in the physical world. Okay, the Orachayim takes this a little bit, just another step forward. The Orachayim over here says, Lo lomar az Moshe. Thank you. It doesn't really have to say thank you so much. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. Thank you. It didn't really have to say then. Why didn't it just say? And Moshe sang. Moshe and the Jewish people sang. Why they'll, they will sing? Because we would understand that that's when it was. Like, if the word then, he's saying, does the word then mean at that time? Like, at that time, on the seventh day of Pesach, <laughs> they sang Shira? He says, because really, you just have to tell us, and they sang, and we would know that it was then. Like, when else would they have sung? Okay, that's not such a simple question. Even Rashi was going for pshat, tells us this is one of the places that hints to Tchiyas HaMesim. Az Yashir Moshe, then in the future Moshe will sing. Not then. Okay, so it's not such an obvious question, but he says even for the simple meaning, we didn't need the word then. Coming. The Pasuk is telling us hamusag, the preparation for the concept. What happened what, how did this idea happen? How did it develop? When there entered into their heart fear of God on high, 
ha-shalema, and a complete, their, their hearts were filled with a sense following that of trust. I can totally trust God. You remember Rav Hirsch had this statement that in learning to fear God, we unlearn the fear of all other people and forces. Remember that statement? Wait, say it again. Yeah, I hope I'm quoting it exactly correctly. I don't think I have the Hirsch sitter here. He says on Shmona Esra and Gvurus, he says, in learning the fear of God, we unlearn the fear of any other power or person. That's very strong. It's quite mm-hmm. strong. It's and awesome and true. Right? It's mm-hmm. absolute truth. And it opens our eyes to a whole different way of thinking about what fear of God means. Right? We become more and more overwhelmed by the power of God, even though we never can really understand it, the more we recognize what he does. But rather than crushing us, it lifts us up because we lose the fear of anybody else. So there's nothing, there's nobody to be afraid of except God. So now I'm walking with him. I'm in good hands. Okay. So when this came into their hearts, first, Yiras Haromimus, and then Emunah Shalema, complete trust, Az Zahu Lomar Shira Beruach HaKodesh. That's what brought them to merit to sing the Shira with Ruach HaKodesh, with prophetic spirit. He says, he goes on to quote Chazal, that whoever comes to try and sing the Shira properly before God, will merit to be able to do it, which is why it's in our chakras every day. Okay? Doesn't mean you merit to it every day, but remember, az yashir, there's a long-term view here, and in the long-term view, you come to sing it, and you, and you strive for these levels of yira and emuna. then bezer Hashem, you will be given the ability to also reach the next levels of singing that shira with the Ruach HaKodesh, which is a pretty awesome thought. Okay, but that's not our direction. All right, so Psuke de Zimra, coming back. Not back, we're in Psuke de Zimra with Az Yashir also. If the climax is Az Yashir, which is this prophetic Shira, and yet the process of Psuke de Zimra is really a lot of Yira, now we kind of understand a little bit why the Yira brought us to the Az Yashir. Because it's actually, it's somewhere you get in steps. It doesn't happen by itself. Davening's like that anyway. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a wonderful sefer called Ha'arasatvila. So here's how he puts it. Kol perek mi de zimra. Every chapter in psuke de zimra, it's always like prakim of Tehillim, right? Sometimes whole prakim of Navi seems like. Each section of Sukkot de Zimra is descriptive of certain behaviors of Hashem. Meaning, we don't understand Hashem, but we see how he acts upon the world by controlling nature and controlling human affairs. Okay, That's going to be, when we start talking about Baruch Shammar, hopefully next week, right? Baruch she'amer v'hayah ha'olam, Baruch osev reishis, Baruch omer v'osev. That's the summing up, right? Then we like unfold it in detail in all the sections in the middle between Baruch she'amer and Yishtabach. All those sections describe the different ways in which we can look into the world and see 
that Hashem is controlling the patterns. Psukim elu tzrichim lahaviyosanu lechavaya ko amuka shahanefesh tischof es haguf. So if you remember, we have our four row, do I have one right here? Our four row chart. So the bottom <coughs> level of brachos was the body, was the physical world of tools and resources and means that God has given us, all the gifts. But now we're working at the level of the nefesh, the emotional state. So the goal is then, by looking at the forces of the world and how Hashem is controlling them, our emotional state will tow our body along with it. It'll drag it. The emotions will drag the body and they'll say, come on, come on, come on. Recruit might be like a nicer word, right? That your emotions will recruit the body to seek to act. So that's, that is the beginning of the thought behind, right? That you'll feel such this sense of yura, which brings a person to want to sing. That's where the emotion, that's where the emotion drags the body. Okay, so we talked about how Rabbi Orlo compares the, um, your emotions to the motor, right? The steering wheel to your mind. Because it's the emotions that get you somewhere. If you don't have the desire and the excitement and the will, how are you going to drag the chassis of the car anywhere, right? Like, it's just not going to go. So in, in this stage of Psuki de Zimra, the goal is to create an experience inside of our minds and our hearts that is strong enough that it will pull the body along until you feel drawn to sing. And by the way, you're meant to sing Psuki de Zimra. Even halakhically, it's like supposed to be said in a beautiful tune. That it's part of that. It's a part of arousing the emotions to bring the body along. As the Kuzari says, and then he quotes the Kuzari, but I want to quote the Kuzari in more depth because of its connection, I believe, to Elul and Rosh Hashanah and this whole time of year. Okay? Because you start to see that there's something here that we could tap into that's very helpful. I mean, maybe we've been doing it every day in our Psuke de Zimra. But really, if we, could, if we could answer, if we could understand, how could I use my emotional state to recruit my body and motivate it to do what it needs to do, then I'd have a good chuva tool for changing myself, which is hard to do. I mean, I... Until I read this article I told you about, and I'm not saying that I like made progress in every way, but I could say that I was frustrated because I would look back and say for the last 20 years, I'm making the same commitments you have to your Rosh Hashanah time, more or less. Why? Because I'm honest enough, I hope, to see some of the real flaws, and I keep trying to fix them, and they're not changing. It's not like I could look back and say, okay, great, I fixed it. Okay, so I'm going to share with you an article that I read that really made a big change in that area, but it's based on this idea. That, that was depressing. Let me tell you, looking back and feeling like you were motivated to change and you want to change and you're trying to change and it's not happening, that is depressing. I'm not denying it. Okay? The good news is I found something that was helpful. Okay. 
Okay, so I'm going to share that with you. You'll see. Hopefully, you don't have that problem. So you know, you're out every year. You can look back and see that you've accomplished. I'm still here. I hope I'm still. Yeah, still changing. It's never over. He keeps this never over. That's right. That's right. And I think that in doing this, it also helps us understand. You know, Elul is Anila Dodiva Dodili. I am my beloved. My beloved is mine. It's a time of call out to Hashem when He is close. So there's this closeness and feeling of love. But how would that prepare you for din v'chashbun, for judging, being judged? Like, what, is, what does one have to do with the other? It's a little bit puzzling sometimes, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build on this, like, time where it's easier to tune in to feeling close to God. But then how does that help me say, well, I have to change what I'm doing? So that's, that's where I want to head with this. And I want to start with this, this kuzari that was pointed to by the Haras HaTvila on Pesukei Zimra. So he says like this. This is the Mimer Bey's note nun. I don't know. I, unfortunately, the only kuzari I could find in the house, because a lot of my stuff is in storage, is, um, is a Matsuda one, and I, I simply couldn't find the sources in it, so I just gave up and went to the Hebrew. Okay. So the author says, The Divine Torah does not command us to serve Hashem with self-flagellation. He says asceticism. Don't beat yourself up. This is not our idea of great holiness and service of God. Okay, it's the Kuzari. So there's a certain comparative religious study going on here, right? The book of the Kuzari is an interesting story of its own, which we don't have time for today, it looks like. But the book of Kuzari is a response to questions from a searching non-Jewish king who's saying, well, I need more in my life. There must be more than this. What, how do I understand how to serve God? And he brings in a Christian scholar and... He brings in a Jewish scholar and maybe also, I forget, there's like a third one who represents like philosophy or something like that, okay? And he asks them these questions. So there's a certain comparative element over here. He says, the Torah does not say that we're meant to serve God by beating ourselves up. That like the more you hurt your physical body, the better off you are. That's not Jewish. Ki'im lamadatanu hamida hanachona. He says, what the Torah wants us to do is to be balanced. We're supposed to be balanced and not too extreme in any direction. And to realize that all kochos hanefesh, which is like strengths, but it, it's... it's um, there are forces that aren't necessary. It could be spiritual or physical within us. Any of these different forces that drive us have to, have to be used in reason. And you have to realize that to the extent that you allow yourself to be dragged after any one force, you're going to be taking it out from another one. It comes at the expense of something else. So, for example, a person who allows himself to follow after taiva too much, after just like craving things and going after whatever he's in the mood for and feels like, 
Well, that's going to weaken his ability to make calculated decisions. Okay? But what he didn't say over here was everything should be a calculated decision and therefore never. It's very interesting, right? He's not saying, like, ignore the type. It's not exactly the same as, like, what we're used to for the way things sound to Masilas Tisharim. It's not exactly the same. Right. He's sort of saying more like, no, it's natural. Like, if a person gets hungry, that's a taiva. Are you you're supposed to ignore that? <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. Then how will you take care of your body? Okay. So the fact that you get hungry, it's not bad by itself. Okay. What are you going to do about it? Well, if you're just going to always follow, you know, I want this, I want that, I want more. I want what tastes good in this moment. I want something even if it's not kosher. So it, that's going to come at the expense of making reasonable decisions in terms of of the energies that you have. And also the opposite. If a person becomes obsessive compulsive about exact you know, planning of what they're going to do, then it might come at the expense of actually understanding what they need. It's an interesting contrast that he brings. Okay, He says, he gives also like... Um, He says, a person needs to understand that, let's say, deciding they want to do long fasts every day, that's going to come at the expense of the strength of their body. So yes, it weakens the taiva, but it weakens the whole body. And then how is he supposed to do all the mitzvot and ways that he's supposed to serve Hashem? So a person for whom it comes naturally to be like very restrictive with themselves, that person might need to work on strengthening his body in order to get back to his full strength. It could be. I mean, we all know people who actually have to work on eating more because they're not strong enough or they're missing certain vitamins or proteins, right? And then we know the opposite. People who like eat too much and then there's like no restraint and that also is not good, okay? The same thing with possessions. A person who is He's not even saying stingy. A person who says they want to like renounce physical things, he says that's not avodas Hashem. Why? Because it might be for one person, but what about for another person who has a family or has dependents that are relying on him? So he's going to say, no, we don't need to live in a house. We'll be fine in a little tent. And we don't need to have like an indoor bathroom. It's like, hello, you're supposed to be taking care of people. So for that person, maybe if it comes naturally to them to not want to be connected to things, they might have to actually put some work into getting a job that will pay them more so that they can support people properly. Also, like an interesting example. So he says, really, there are three foundations for avodas Hashem, for service of God, according to the Torah. And they are yira, ahava, and simcha. I wish we could do it today. Rabbi Orlok has an amazing shear on your Ava and Simcha, and they correspond to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Okay, but it's not today's shear. He says, the Kuzari says, these are three foundations through which a person can draw close to God with any one of these. And we do not believe that one of them is holier than the other. Okay, there are religions where whatever looks like Yira, they'll say that's holy. But Simcha, are you kidding? Happy? What does that have to do with holiness, right? Love, what does that have to do with? He says, no, all of these. He says, therefore, and really what he's saying is, it's whether it's avodah Hashem that makes it avodah Hashem, 
not whether it looks spiritual that makes it avodah Hashem. That's really the point. When you subjugate yourself on a fast day, you can bring yourself close to God. I mean, Kippur, when you don't eat, because God said don't eat, you can get much closer to Hashem that way. But don't think you get closer to Hashem than when you serve Him with Simcha and Shabbos and Yontif. That's a different kind of way of thinking. Why? He says, by the way, that Simchan, Shabbos, and Yantif is not automatically Avodah Hashem. Right? If you're just having fun and you like the dancing and you like the singing and you like the food, where was your Avodah Hashem in that either? Why? It becomes, if your Simcha comes, mitoch machshava vekavana, because it's intentional and you thought about it and you had kavana. You said, why am I eating this meal? Lekavad Yantif. I'm eating this meal because we're celebrating with God. I'm eating this meal because it says, V'somachta Bechagecha, right? We're dancing in shul on, on Simcha's Torah. Why? Because it's fun? We're dancing in shul because this is how we're serving Hashem today. Then you should know that you draw just as close to God through the avodas of Simcha as the avodas of Yira and the avoda of Ava. They're all necessary. They're all three foundations of avodas Hashem. And they're only foundations of Avodah Hashem when it comes from Machshava and Kavana. That's the key. So Simcha also requires to do its mitzvot, Machshava and Kavana, in order in order that you will be happy in the mitzvah itself. The mitzvah as a mitzvah per se, meaning not, not you're happy because it's dancing or singing or food or friends. You're happy because it's a mitzvah mitoch ahavoscha la mitzuve aleha because of your simcha and love for the one who commanded it and you recognize in it how good it is for you. I think there's like a key point here, and I think it's very similar to this idea from Rav Leichter. That's why I brought the book, but I brought really the article that started it all. Okay, that was like, there were a few very important points here, but that last one, the, the real simcha in a mitzvah isn't, isn't that you did a mitzvah which happens to be happy and fun. The simcha in a mitzvah is how happy you are to be doing the mitzvah. It's, it, it's like, is it like the emotion that you said, like what's the emotion that drives so the simcha? So what's the emotion that drives the simcha? So that's, that's really where I wanted to come to this. This is an article, I don't have the cover page printed out, but this was an article a few years ago in the Mishpacha about Rabbi Leichter, and it was because he was just publishing this little book, little, this is a very big little book, about, about tshuva. Okay, it's called Tshuva Restoring Life. All right, so this article, when I read this article, it was like a lifeline, because like I said, you know, like you go year after year after year, and I, at least for me, I, I really had this feeling that like I'm stalled somehow. 
And I can see where I thought I need to go, and I don't seem to be able to get there. I'll give you what, it, what it's comparable to. You hear people say things like, I know I really should go to the class. I know I really ought to not talk that way. Even if they don't say but, it means but. I know I really should. And we all have the equivalent language in our own inner minds. I know I really should get up and put away the dishes, but I'm so tired. Okay, that's, it's, I know I really should. And the problem with I know I really should, from experience, it doesn't, it doesn't change. Meaning we say that because we think that if I say it out loud, if I recognize what I should be doing, that should be enough to get me to do it. And yet, real life kind of shows us that just knowing what we really ought to be doing is not enough sometimes, sometimes, like oftentimes, to get us to do it. Just because we should do it isn't enough. So what goes wrong? So he, he begins by talking about, uh, he talks about Revolbi translating, that he, he helped Revolbi translate a Sefer. And Revolbi struggled for two weeks on how to translate these two words. Ve'yisangu mituvecha. I mean, this is like Shmon Esri and Chavez. Like, it's not such a rare ve'yisangu. Let me give his, OK. Normally, you would translate that as, they delight in your goodness. But the mashkiach wasn't happy with that phrase. And he couldn't find a phrase in use today that would convey what he thought it really meant. Finally, it came to him. Oneg nega nogea. Ve'yis angu is the word oneg, ayin nun gemel. But it's related to nega, like something lingoa, to touch. Okay? It's, the letters are in a different order. He said, it means to be touched. So it means to be internally touched or moved. Have the feeling of being stirred, like a mother who gazes at her child with delight. That's ve'yis angu mituvecha. That's how we would feel about Hashem's goodness to gaze on it and feel like deeply moved within. It comes from Shabbos davening, but he says, really, whether you're talking about Shabbos or Avodos Hashem every day or tshuva this time of year, really, this is the key to change. The key to change is, do you look at the good? Do you look at what is really good? The Torah, the mitzvot, your Avodos Hashem, and feel like deeply stirred and connected. The same way you feel when you look at like a little baby, especially your own or your child's. Okay. But then how do you get to that? Okay, do you understand the connection between what we're talking about, about going from like Yira to Amuna to this, something that like stirred up the emotions to the point where the heart is saying, come on, we got to do something. We got to sing Shira. Come on, we got to go. We got to... Right? How do, you, how do you make that happen? Okay. So I'm skipping. I'm skipping. But neither I can email this to anyone or we can ask them to make some copies yeah, up here. This is an yeah. amazing article. Yeah. Like, I'm telling you, this was a life-changing article for me. Life-changing. I, I couldn't wait. It's, yes. He's giving oh, over, like, a little article. This was yeah. from Mishpacha. And he gave, like, a sort of an introduction to the book. The book goes, like, very, very, like, just having the article yeah, for me was transformative to my tshuva. Okay. He says, so here's the tricky thing in Emuna. I mean, sorry, the tricky thing in Teshuvah. 
tshuva requires the inner change, it, not just an action. So I, I'm telling you now, this is not exactly the same, although Rabbi Goldberg gave a shir once where he totally retranslated the, the Sefer HaChinuch, so maybe it is the same, I don't know. But the way people usually talk about how the action, you change your actions and your feelings will follow. I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying that in my personal experience, I had trouble making that work for me in terms of lasting change. I will share that, okay? He says, really, tshuva has to be an interchange. So Masilas Yasharm says, akiras haratzon, uprooting the will, that is the same as uprooting the action. Remember we talked about like there's like the thought and then the action? So if you get it at the root of the thought, you could change the action. That's tshuva. Even if the action's done, you could change the action by getting at the root of the thought. Okay, but how do you do that? Like, it's very nice to say I want to change my will, but when you're faced with the ice cream, you want the ice cream. You feel the sense of will, okay? Like to use one of our food examples again, because they're so easy, right? What do you do when you feel that? Like, yes, you have a desire to do better. Very hard to compete a desire to do better with a desire to do what's right. <laughs> Sorry, like, it's very, very hard to make them compete. So how do we make them compete? And that's really what he works on. So he says, what we have to get in touch with is the desire for the goodness in the tshuva of the mitzvah. Remember how the Kuzari said, like, talked about the simcha in the mitzvah itself and the love for the one doing it? Okay, I went over time here. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I came late. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Okay. He says, is it, it's not just that we're lazy. So he gives an example from learning Torah, because that's like a typical, especially male, need to do tshuva. He says, it's not just that I change it. It's not just I try to change an action. He says, what I have to do is find a way to make the mitzvah agreeable and satisfying and something I look forward to. Now, that doesn't mean I just do whatever I feel like. It's the opposite. It's saying, you know, Hashem wants me to do this. There's an obligation. I want to do what's right in my head. How do I get it so that in my heart I want to do what's right? How do I like think about benching in a way that I get excited, I can't wait to try out some benching, okay? We've worked on these things ourselves, right? Like if I learn something sometimes different about the benching, then I get excited to say that because I want to think about that idea again, right? Or maybe if I'll do it with a friend, then I'll look forward to doing it. So he talks about this. He says, you develop a new self-concept because if you just say, I'll do whatever Hashem wants, you decide to do it, but in the long run, you don't actually do it. That's just what our experience shows us. So if we say, what does Hashem want from me? It's not just like a dry rule. It's a relationship. What does Hashem want from me? He wants me to be connected to Torah. So he wants me to learn Torah. But what if it's not good for me to sit and learn for eight hours standing at a shtender? either because I need the money or because like I have a family and children and like other things to do, right? Or maybe I can't focus. He says, well, learning Torah, because this is his male example, he has for women also. He says, learning is also thinking about Torah. Is if you're listening to a recording of a shir and you're paying attention, that's also learning Torah. 
He says, if you open up a Sefer in the morning over breakfast and you read one paragraph with a question and you turn that question over in your mind all the rest of the day, you're just curious, like, I wonder what the answer is to that. That's also having your mind on Torah all day. It doesn't look good on a resume. It doesn't look good on a resume. Yeah, he talks about this, like, tough luck. Like, it doesn't matter what other people think, how big your change is. Changing something inside so that you found not only the sense of obligation, but the desire, you found what aspect of this mitzvah you resonate to means that I work it inside of me. And now what Hashem is demanding of me is my will. It's making God's will my will, which is like way up here lofty. And all of a sudden, like, by the way, this isn't so easy. You do have to think about it, but it's very achievable to realize, like, you know what? I have a problem. Like, I... I, I don't know. I shout at my kid or something it's and then say, I so. Should. It's giving you like. Yeah, yeah. It's saying, so how can I? How can exactly. How could I do that? That's good. What piece of that mitzvah could get me excited? Maybe I haven't thought about all the ways I could be doing this. Right. Maybe there's some other way I could do it. Maybe there's some other timing or some other trigger or some other, right? Something, and then I'm going to start to find. He says, this is a creative avoda that aligns the demand with my own desires. And then it becomes real. And then when I say, okay, that's how I'm going to do it, it's achievable. Because it's something where I have a pleasure in the mitzvah and in the fact that it is commanded. Sometimes it's in the language where it's like time to bench. It could, yeah. we, we have to bench. It's like we get to bench. We get to bench. An opportunity if that's enough for you, fine. Sometimes, Sometimes you have to have something in the benching that you look forward right, right, right. to. For some people, it's the tune. If you love the tune, yeah. you love the benching, you know? If you love certain words or a certain bracha or something <coughs> in it that connects to what's going on in your life right now, whatever it is, you know, yes, then you might say to yourself, okay, this definitely helped for me. When I sit down to wash, I take the bencher and put it next to me. By the way, that has worked so amazing, <laughs> amazing in preventing the problem of getting up and walking away and then forgetting to bench. Mm -hmm. Because like kids happen and then like you forget and something comes up. Just putting the bencher there at the beginning. But I had to want to do that. I have to want a bench to come up with an action that's such a small action. But the change is inside. Okay. Does so, it help if you put the bencher near your kid's plate too? I haven't tried it. But I'll tell you that it helps if you You're, look forward to benching, mm -hmm. even if you don't talk about it. That helps better than putting it there. You get your room back. We just finished. Thank you. Sorry.